Amen. Well, good morning. Well, if you would go to John chapter 21. Back in the Gospel of John, John chapter 21. We'll take up verse 1 through 8 this morning. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the living God. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put out, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And so, Father, we ask you one more time, humbly depending on your spirit, that you would bless us. Lord, there is something, many things in this passage that your people need to see. Please open our eyes that we would behold them by the Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been in a uh, rather exhaustive uh, marriage series for about the last two and a half months. And uh, Pastor John Mark, uh, thank you, brother, for putting us there Uh, over the last few months. I would encourage you if you're a visitor or if you've come a little bit into that series to go back and just start with the first sermon and listen to those messages. I really believe they were blessed of the Lord. But we're going to jump back into the Gospel of John this morning. And Lord willing, uh, we are going to finish the Gospel of John before we jump into everything else. And so if you're like me, that seems kind of strange Uh, Because all we've known, many of us as members of the cross, has been our study in the Gospel of John. Uh, We joined the church back in 2017, and I believe we were in John chapter 3, John chapter 4, somewhere around there, and we are going to finish the Gospel of John in the next few weeks. And and you could say, uh, rightly so, that we've already finished the Gospel of John. Uh, If you remember, about three months ago, I preached from John 20, 30 to 31, and we looked at John's purpose statement, and we saw how that purpose statement in many ways concludes the gospel. And so what we have here in John 21 is sort of a postscript. Uh, It's an epilogue, and it makes sense that John would write an epilogue uh, for his gospel because there's also a a prologue uh, back in John chapter 1, verses 1 uh, to 18. And that's not to say, however, uh, that John 21 is unimportant. 
Uh, we know how important the prologue is, right? Uh, we see things in the prologue that show us about the divinity of Christ, and it reveals the nature of Christ, and we know that that's extremely significant. And here in John 21, we are going to see that John has recorded for us some very important things, and he's answered for us some very important questions. Uh, and here's a few of those questions. What do the disciples do after Jesus appears to them in the room those two times? What do they do? Do they stay in that room? What about Peter? He denied the Lord three times. Is Peter disqualified? Uh, we know from the book of, book of Acts that he's not disqualified. He goes on to do many incredible things and lead the church. So does Jesus just overlook his sin as if it never happened? John answers that for us in this passage we'll see in the coming weeks. Who wrote the Gospel of John? It's a question uh, that we, we're going to see answered here. John is going to reveal himself as the author, I think, rather decisively. And, and this is very important, and this is what we will focus on this morning. What does life look like after the resurrection of Jesus Christ for disciples? Uh, what will be the characterization of how they live? How do uh, disciples of Jesus relate to Jesus after His resurrection? Uh, how do they relate to each other? How do they relate to the world? How do they relate to their former occupations? And as we jump into this passage, uh, it's very important for us to remember uh, the time frame of these events. And so this is after Jesus' second uh, resurrection appearance to all of the disciples together as a group. And so that happened back in John 20 on the second Sunday after the resurrection. Uh, verse 1 here tells us that they were at the Sea of Tiberias, which is the same as the Sea of Galilee. So they've made their way from Jerusalem, where they were at when he appeared to them in the room, to the Sea of Galilee in obedience to him. Remember in Matthew 28, he tells them to go to Galilee and that he will meet them there. Yet we also know from Luke 24 49 that Jesus tells his disciples not to leave Jerusalem but to tarry in Jerusalem until they've received power from on high. And so they have not yet received the Spirit in its full uh, context and in the fullness of the Spirit in the Joel 2 New Covenant way. And so John 21 is probably said a couple of weeks after the resurrection, but yet they have not made their way back to Jerusalem and they have not yet been filled with the Spirit in the way that they would be at Pentecost. And so that's the context for what we're going to be looking at. And it's important to keep the context in mind. Uh, number one, we should always read and interpret Scripture in light of its proper context. Uh, and two, doing so will keep us from imposing meaning upon these narrative details that the text just simply does not warrant. Uh, one of the temptations in interpreting narratives is to impose details and theological meanings that might make sense, but that the text just does not justify. And we want to be careful of doing that. However, at the same time, if we've seen anything in the Gospel of John, it's that while John gives historical, factual details that are real and literal, and they actually happened, he very often 
usually always has theological meaning underneath the historical details that he wants the reader to see. And we will definitely see that uh, this morning. So I want to walk us through these eight verses. And I believe that we will see in this historical narrative some very uh, important lessons about life after the resurrection of Christ. So beginning in verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And He revealed Himself in this way. So before we unpack all of these details, uh, verse 1 provides us with the backdrop for this entire narrative. Uh, Jesus reveals Himself. Uh, The LSB says that He manifested Himself. He did not reveal Himself post-resurrection to the world. He reveals Himself post-resurrection to the disciples. And He told them this would be the case back in chapter 14-19 when He said, Yet a little while and the world will see Me no more, but you will see Me. Uh, This is significant. The disciples do not go looking for Jesus. We've seen this already in John 20. Jesus comes to His people. Uh, Remember back in John 20, they were shut up in that room. They were locked up for fear of the Jews. And it says that Jesus comes to them. He just comes to them. He appears to them. And He appears to them here on the beach at the Sea of Galilee. And there's something I think to be said here about the glory of Christ and how He is exalted above all spirits and above all other so-called gods. I mean, think about this. People are obsessed today with paranormal activity. Uh, People are obsessed with with spirits. And and they always have been. Uh, Reading the Scriptures, we see necromancing. And all of these things, calling up the dead, communicating with the dead. Remember a few years ago, I don't know that this is super popular today, uh, people played with Ouija boards, trying to call up spirits and trying to get spirits to communicate with them and answer their questions. You can go into a bookstore and you can get a fully developed New Age book about magic and all of these things. Uh, people have always been into charm and enchanting and alchemy. And now I'm sure you've probably all seen this. People are infatuated with the occult, right? And, and UFOs and communicating with other life forms. And people are infatuated with this stuff. And what does all that have in common? Well, here's what, they, what it has in common. Humans perform some hocus-pocus rituals And whatever's on the other side supposedly communicates with them, usually very weak and frail. That's not what we see with Jesus, the Lord of glory, is it? Jesus, the Lord of glory, does whatever He wants. He shows up wherever He wants. He doesn't need us to dream something up for Him. He doesn't need our rituals He doesn't need us to go through a series of steps to get Him to appear. He just shows up. The doors are locked. It doesn't matter. He just shows up anyway. Uh, He wasn't just randomly walking on the beach and saw the disciples here. He came to them knowing they were out there struggling to catch fish. 
He is the sovereign Lord of glory. He is always in control of His will. And here, when these disciples probably least expect it, Jesus comes to them and reveals Himself to them. And the revelation is not merely physical. I mean, it is. They, they do actually see Him. They're not, seeing, uh, they're not hallucinating. They actually see Him. Uh, though, uh, they see Him in a way that's further than physical. Right? Uh, this revelation goes beyond physical appearance and it involves a spiritual revelation of the person of Christ so that they behold His glory. Uh, this is a consistent theme across the Gospels that the resurrected Christ opens the eyes of His disciples so that they know Him and worship Him. Uh, Jesus prayed back in John 17.6. He said, I have manifested Your name, Father, to the people You gave Me out of the world. Uh, it's the same word, manifested or revealed. What, what does that mean? Does Jesus just merely uh, tell the disciples about the Father? Or does He reveal the Father to their hearts so that they know the Father and come to love the Father and follow the Father? Has He opened their hearts by divine illumination to know the Godhead? And I think the same thing is going on here. These disciples, are, they're going to see a man yelling at them from the shore. They're going to see Jesus and hear His voice. Yet, by divine illumination, Jesus is going to, beginning with John, open the spiritual eyes of their hearts to see the glory of Christ. And I'll unpack this a little bit more in just a moment, but let me encourage some of you who have been praying for lost friends, lost family members, wayward children for years and years. You've been sharing the Gospel for years, and it just seems that the person is dull and dead and blind. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, can reveal Himself to a sinner whenever He wants. There's nothing stopping Him from opening the eyes of a dead sinner and making Him come alive to see His glory and to come to know Him in a salvific way. And, and He may come at a time when it is least expected. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were Together, We could say a lot about the men who were named here, but what is really interesting is that this is the first time in the Gospel of John that John has used the title Sons of Zebedee. And I think he uses the title for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think he's setting up uh, the, the scene to reveal himself as the author. And we will see that in a few weeks. But also, I think it's really likely that John uses the title Sons of Zebedee to get us to think back to a similar story from a few years ago where Simon Peter was there and where the sons of Zebedee were there and there was a boat and a fishing trip and they were toiling, trying to catch fish and they couldn't catch anything until Jesus says, launch out the net. And then all of a sudden they catch this huge catch of fish. And Simon Peter humbles himself in penitence before the Lord and comes to know the Lord. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. 
It's Luke chapter 5. I absolutely think that John has that event in mind, and he wants us to have that event in mind because it's going to shed light on some of the problems that we are going to see in these next few verses. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now, some people look at the disciples here and they say, these guys are being absolutely disobedient. Blatantly disobedient. Because they'll look back to John 20 where Jesus comes to them and He says, as the Father has sent Me, even so I am sending you. And they'll look at that as the commission, and it is the Johanian uh, Great Commission, and they'll say, look, they're not supposed to be fishing. They're supposed to be fishing for men. They're being blatantly disobedient to their Lord. While that might preach, I just do not think that the text justifies that type of conclusion. I think it's likely that these disciples are still very confused. Uh, They're very sorrowful. Uh, They know they're supposed to be doing something significant. Jesus has appeared to them at least twice now together as a group. Uh, And they know Peter is supposed to be their leader, but he betrayed the Lord three times. So now there's probably some questioning there. Is Peter still in charge? Is he still the leader? Is he still qualified to do this? Uh, They know that something significant is coming. They've been hearing Jesus say these incredible things about the kingdom of God and about the coming of the Helper and all of these things. But they do not yet have a clear vision for what life looks like post-resurrection. And they haven't received the Spirit in its fullness yet. And they still need to eat. Right? And they're fishermen. So what do they do? They go fishing. So I don't think we can look at this and just say that the disciples were blatantly disobedient. However, again, if there's anything we've seen in the Gospel of John, it's that while John will give us a historical account and a historical narrative, there are theological themes up under these details that he wants us to see. This goes beyond merely catching fish. This is more important than catching fish and getting food. It says they went out, got into the boat, but that night, there's historical and spiritual significance for the word night, I'll get into in a moment, they caught nothing. So picture these disciples, confused, sorrowful, afraid, and what do they do? They go back to the thing that they are most comfortable with. They go back to doing what is most comfortable to them with the people they are most comfortable with. And they fish all night and don't catch a single fish. And I have to just drop down right here because I think this just really hits home. Guys, it is very possible that some of you, if you are honest, you find yourself in a place very similar to these disciples on this Boat. You know the Lord. He's revealed Himself to you. You are saved. You're washed in the blood of Christ. You're going to heaven. You've bore fruit that demonstrates that He has saved you. You've been taught well. You understand biblical doctrines and concepts. 
Uh, You understand the importance of communion with Christ and fellowship in the local church. Yet, it is possible that your life right now is bearing very little kingdom fruit. Fruit for the kingdom of God because you are trying to live life according to your old philosophies, your old ways of thinking, your old lifestyle, and you're bearing very little fruit for the kingdom of God. Old habits, old ways of thinking dominate, possibly hesitating to branch out and meet new people and serve other people and inconvenience yourselves for the good of others. And instead, we may stay closed up and just surround ourselves by the people we're most comfortable with that we know best and know us best and don't branch out and love others. It's possible that some of you keep trying to make supernatural results happen apart from supernatural means, apart from prayer, apart from abiding in the Lord. And you won't make private devotions a priority and your war slap out from fishing all night in your own strength and you're catching nothing. It's very possible. And if that's you, it could very well be the case that Jesus in His grace and mercy, not in His anger, in His grace and mercy will not allow you to catch anything because He wants to teach you something about living life in the kingdom. And He is jealous over your fidelity to Him. And He loves you. Because we could rightly say, guys, that the, the, the big catch of fish is a miracle. It is. It's a miracle. But we could also say that the fact that they caught nothing all night was a miracle. These guys are skilled, expert fishermen. At least three of them are. And they labored all night and didn't catch anything. Jesus, the sovereign Lord of glory, providentially keeps all the fish from their net that night. Why? Because more than these disciples needed to catch fish and eat, they needed to learn something about life after the resurrection. And He shows them They need to learn that now that they've seen Jesus in His resurrected form, now that He's revealed Himself to them, they can't just go back to the old way of doing things. They can't just go go back to the things the way they used to be. Their old worldly, fleshly, self-sufficient philosophies for life or how it works. They have to adopt His worldview, His philosophy, His way of life. And walk in His commands and do things His way and abide in Him. And if they don't, they will be fruitless. And they should know this. It's not the first time they've heard it. Remember back in John 15, uh, when they're leaving the upper room, and Jesus is with the eleven teaching them on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says to them in John 15, 4 and 5, Abide in Me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Listen, whoever abides in Me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can do nothing. 
does this apply to you today? Brother, sister. He has commissioned, commissioned us to be about the Great Commission. To advance the Kingdom of God. To love His people. To love Him. To worship Him. To offer our bodies as spiritual sacrifices of worship. Yet, we so often, so often, go back to our old way of life. Under our old way of thinking. With our worldly mindedness and we live apart from Christ and in His mercy and in His jealousy over our commitment and our allegiance to Him, He allows us to fail. And He does not bless our endeavors because what's more important than our success is our allegiance to Him. And He wants our undivided allegiance. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered Him, No. Uh, you could see this as Jesus being affectionate to the disciples. Uh, there's nothing in the text that would say that's not the case. Uh, but I think it's better to see the question more as a statement. Jesus knows they haven't caught any fish. Uh, and He's pointing that out to them. We, maybe we could say He's righteously chiding them. Uh, the word children could be translated boys or lads or guys. Uh, right? It's almost like He's asking the question to tell them, you haven't caught anything. Boys, what are you doing? Have you caught any fish? Remember what happened last time you were in the boat and you didn't catch any fish? What happened? Have you forgot, brothers? And now we really begin to see the primary meaning of this text unveiled. I, I agree with Edward Clink, who argues that the major conflict of this narrative is not who's in the boat, not even why they're in the boat. That, that's not the problem. The problem is not that they went fishing. The problem is who's not in the boat. Who's not in the boat? Jesus is not in the boat. That's the problem. Jesus is not with them. Jesus is absent. That's the major conflict of the narrative. And John records this narrative to show the disciples that godly living after the resurrection requires an ongoing, humble, abiding in Him. An ongoing, humble dependence on Him. And if He is absent from their lives, they will bear no fruit. They will do nothing. They will catch no fish for the kingdom of God. And life will be utterly frustrating. Utterly frustrating. It's the same way for us. But if we abide in Jesus, if we rely on Jesus, if we obey Jesus, if we live according to His terms and obey His commands, no matter what, look at what happens next. Verse 6, He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Clearly, there is nothing superstitious about the right side of the boat. This is a miracle. In a moment of time, Jesus causes 153 of these large fish to swim into the net. Or He may have just made them appear into the net. Because He's the sovereign Creator of all 
things. And the point again is very simple. When Jesus' disciples humbly depend upon Him and obey Him, they can expect to bear much fruit. They can expect to have what they need. They can expect to catch men in their nets for the kingdom. They can expect to yield fruitful results. And He will work through them supernaturally. These guys didn't change anything about their fishing in that moment. They just threw the net out in obedience and they caught 153 fish. Supernatural. And this is true individually and corporately for a church. You know, some, someone may say, the Lord is blessing the cross church. I pray He is. What are we going to do? Are we going to keep praying? Or are we going to become pragmatic? We're going to keep humbly depending on the Lord, or are we just going to do what works? And this is something that we have to press upon our consciences, brothers and sisters, because we so easily forget. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. When we don't abide in Him, we will wither and become fruitless. And we are so prone to pride and arrogance that we can have an incredibly fruitful season devotionally, in our homes, in our character, in evangelistically fruit-bearing for a season. And then move out of that season and come into a place where we aren't as fruitful because we stop abiding. We stop doing things that God works supernaturally through. And we get frustrated. And we get calloused. And our hearts, hearts become hard. And we move away from abiding. And we revert back to our old ways and our old experiences and we move into a season of barrenness. Yet instead of remembering the truth that yielded the fruit, what do we do? We blame. We get arrogant. We, we say it's someone else's fault. We, we look around at us, and it, but we forget that we quit abiding in Christ. But these disciples are about to receive the clarity they've been missing. At verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. Now, this incredible display of power probably jogs John's mind. I remember this same exact scene. It happened to us a few years ago. And there was a man who told us to throw the net into the water and there was a bunch of fish in it after that. It's the Lord. And he sees the Lord. Yet at the same time, Jesus, I believe, reveals himself supernaturally to John so that John not only sees him out there on the shore, but he sees him with the spiritual eyes of his heart. And as the light begins to shine in the day literally so that they can see Jesus, the light has shined in John's heart to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And when it says, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Now, Peter is just an astounding character, isn't he? I'm so thankful God chose to work through Peter. I'm so thankful God chose to use a raw man like Peter 
and he's authentic in all of these things. He's rough around the edges, but there are a couple of really profound and beautiful things here that I do not want us to miss. Uh, Number one, Peter does not for shame keep himself from the Lord. Think about this. Imagine Peter's conscience at this point. Just a few days before, a few weeks before, he denies the Lord by that by that fire, you remember? And the rooster crows. And in, in Luke, it tells us that Jesus looks back at Peter. It says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Could you imagine that, that image being just pressed upon Peter's heart and conscience? Seeing his Lord betrayed into the hands of sinful men. I think about how burdened he would have been after denying the Lord. I think about the shame and condemnation that he would have experienced. And what do many of us do when we fail the Lord? We do what Adam and Eve did. We run because we're ashamed. We withdraw from the Lord. Yet Peter knows, he's already said this, there is no one else to whom we should go. The Lord is His only hope. And despite His sin, despite His feelings, despite wondering if He's still qualified to lead the church and to be, have the church built upon Him and to lead the group, He throws Himself into the sea and pursues the Lord. How I long, brothers and sisters, uh, for us to come into corporate worship and despite our conscience's accusations, despite the shame that we feel from our constant repetitive failures throughout the week, that we could come in here and see the Lord and lay all that aside and pursue Him with an utter abandonment, knowing that He's the only one that can do anything about our problems. What what does shame do for you? What does wallying and guilt do for you? does nothing. But Jesus forgives sinners. He washes them in His blood. The other thing I want us to see here is the difference in John and Peter. John recognizes the Lord before Peter does. Peter, when he recognizes the Lord from John, throws himself into the sea and swims to the Lord while John remains in the boat. And I think this is a beautiful picture of how diversity within the body of Christ works in complementarity. Peter is more of an abrasive, raw, emotional character. Uh, John, though he does show himself to be abrasive, uh, he's more perceptive, it seems. He's quieter. He's slower. Uh, We see Peter cutting off people's ears for Jesus. Yet we see John drawing near to Jesus' bosom, having the type of relationship with Jesus that he can whisper, who is it, Lord, that's going to betray you? And the Lord shows him. Uh, We see uh, Peter driving the church in the book of Acts, doing all sorts of public things, yet John finds himself at the end of his life on an island, and he seems much more prophetic. Alright, just read the book of Revelation. 
the body of Christ is made up of people with varying personalities, varying gifts, varying talents and abilities, and yet all the parts work together in unison for the growth of the body, for the good of the body. Uh, I mean, this, this is how it works, brothers and sisters. Jesus is the only man who has ever had perfect human character. The rest of us, we have a lot of sin, a lot of weaknesses, a lot of blind spots. Where some of us are weak, others are strong. Where some of us lack giftedness, others of us are particularly gifted. And we build each other up. And we are not to compete and strive over those things, but to glorify God because of those things. I love the analogy that Paul Washer gives. You know, you can have three people get saved the same evening. It's hearing the same message. They get saved. They come to know the Lord. One guy, within a few days, he's just sharing the Gospel with everybody. You ever met somebody like this? Social media is just Gospel, Gospel, Gospel. He's out on the streets. He's handing out tracts. Just fired up to tell everybody about the Lord. And yet, the, the second guy just loves the Scriptures. And he spends hours a week Praying and, and reading the scriptures and reading theology, and he just can't get enough of this book. And he has a, an ability to perceive spiritual truths that's, that's unusual. And yet, the third person uh, who's naturally timid and who doesn't read well, yet this person loves to serve. And anytime someone needs anything, that person is there. They're always helping, always volunteering, always showing up early. They don't care what people, they don't care about receiving any accolades publicly. They're just serving. They love to serve the church. What is that? It's a picture of the body of Christ. This is how it works. God gives his people varying degrees of the Spirit for the good of the body. We should celebrate that and enjoy that. It's God's design. Verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Uh, so get this image in your head. Uh, Peter jumps out of the boat after having fished all night, and he swims the length of a football field to get to Jesus. So it's, a, it's a pretty long way to swim after having fished all night. And the others come in on the boat dragging the net. I mean, can you imagine the joy that they were experiencing in this moment? All night long, they labor and toil and catch nothing. And we know a consistent theme in John is the theme of night and day. Darkness and light. We've seen this all throughout, that when it comes to darkness and light, there's a duality of meaning. So Jesus can really be talking about the night, yet He's really talking about this spiritual darkness of the world. And He calls Himself the light of the world. And there's a spiritual intent here as well. And so historically, they went fishing at night. And it was literally dark outside. And according to verse 4, uh, the day was breaking, meaning the morning was dawning and the sun was beginning to show. And so it makes sense on a literal level that they could not see Jesus a hundred yards away on the shore. That, that makes sense. 
But I think we would be naive to think that the only reason they don't recognize Him is because it's still dark outside. Remember back in John 20, when Mary came to the tomb early in the morning. It's an interesting time parallel, isn't it? She came early in the morning and she thinks Jesus is the gardener and doesn't recognize Him. When does she realize that it is the Lord? When the sun gets brighter so that she can see? No, it's when He looks to her and says, Mary. And at that moment, she sees with the eyes of her heart, Rabboni. It's the Lord. And she knows Him. The spiritual eyes of her heart were illuminated. And in the same way, though these guys can barely see someone on the shore, they don't know who He is, but after the miracle, while the physical light was shining in the darkness, the spiritual light in their hearts caused them to see it's the Lord. He's, he's there. He's with us. Let's go to Him. And Peter launches himself into the sea and swims to pursue his Lord. This is exactly what happens to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember in Luke 24, 30-31, they had been walking with Him for quite some time. Talking to Him. Didn't know who He was. But yet it says, when He was at the table with them, He took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized Him. These seven disciples recognize their Lord and they love Him. And suddenly, uh, this miserable night of toil and failure turns into an incredible occasion for joy. He told them it would be this way back in 1620. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy. And I think here is where that full joy that Jesus spoke to them about just a few weeks earlier begins to really settle in. In the first two resurrection appearances, it seemed that they're just still really confused. And there's, there's unbelief. And they're afraid. And they're, they're terrified. Uh, but here in John 21, after a few weeks have passed and they uh, witnessed, uh, they've, seen, they've seen Jesus a couple of times, here when Jesus causes the fish to flood into the net and they witness His miraculous power here in the sea and they see Him on the shore, I believe they begin to settle in what life will be like after the resurrection they start to realize that not only is Jesus alive, but He can come to us whenever and however He wants. They realize that He is the sovereign, miracle-working Lord of creation that can provide for them and sustain them and will bear fruit through them. And I want to come back to this next week and finish this narrative as the disciples eat breakfast with Jesus on the beach. Uh, but I want to close by putting this last thought before us. The disciples' joy is directly related 
to their recognizing the Lord and seeing who He is for them and what He does for them. And I submit to you today that if you are lacking joy, it is not because there is something deficient in Christ's ministry to you. There is no lack in Christ. There is no lack in His care for you, in His ministry to you. The deficiency is in your refusal to recognize Him and your refusal to rejoice in all that He is for you. How long has it been since you've been like Peter here saying, I don't care what I leave behind. I I don't care if I leave all the fish in the boat behind. I, I don't care if I get wet and soaked. The Lord is over there. And I am going to pursue Him with an utter relentlessness and an abandonment because I love Him and He is all that I have. How long has it been since you rejoiced in Him and recognized how good He's been to you? Uh, Peter's actions here are an illustration of what Paul meant in Philippians 3.8 when he said, I count it all as loss. That old former life counted all as rubbish for the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And when Peter jumps out of that boat and swims a hundred yards to get to Jesus, uh, he's forsaking his old way of life. He's leaving behind the, the very thing that so intrinsically was woven into the identity of Simon, son of John. And he leaves it behind. And he pursues his Lord with abandonment because he sees the worth and value of his Lord Jesus Christ. How long has it been since you pursued Christ like this? He bids you to come to him today. He said in Matthew 11.28-29, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you're wore out from striving, if you're tired from working to be righteous or to be successful or to bear fruit, he says, Come to me, come to me, and I'll give you rest. And he goes on to say, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Do things my way. Rest in me. Abide in me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Imagine how tired Peter was after that hundred yard swim to the shore. Yet, he found rest for his soul. It's amazing. It's utterly amazing. What better place to seek Him and to commune with Him than to begin right here at His table by faith. Amen? So as we transition to the table, uh, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and you are clothed in His righteousness, not your own, but His, and you've been baptized in His name, uh, we would ask you to come and enjoy uh, the supper with us and commune with us and with Christ. And if not, we would ask you to remain in your seat, uh, but there are some prayers in our bulletin that you can pray uh, while we take the supper. Amen. Uh, Take a few moments there.
I come to the table not plagued in your conscience, not burdened by your sins, but seeing Jesus, the Lord of glory, and all that He is for you. And let's commune with Him by faith. Amen. Come take the elements and return to your seat. We'll take it together. I'll pray for us. Father, we thank You so much for Jesus Christ and all that He's accomplished for us. Lord, His ministry is never lacking. He has made the way for us in His death and resurrection. He has provided for us. We worship You, God. And we pray that we could see more fully who You are for us and rejoice in that and pursue You, Lord, with an utter abandonment for this world. And we ask that You would make us abundantly fruitful for Your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.